How to Hunt Deer podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticamp. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. Here we cover a variety of topics that are going to help you be more confident and successful in the field while you're hunting deer. Thank you so much for tuning in with us this week. Uh, Man, what a tremendous honor to have Mr. Kip Adams from the National Deer Association on the show today. He is NDA's Chief Conservation Officer. Uh, Kip is an absolute wealth of knowledge. Every year, the NDA puts out uh, their deer report, right? So usually it's, you know, January of the year. Uh, As we head into season, I wanted to talk with Kip about the 2023 deer report, even though it's, you know, nine months old at this point. I did want to have him on and discuss a couple of the big takeaways from the deer report, because I think that informs not only how we hunt, it informs the harvest decisions that we make. And, you know, this is that time of year when we're all geared up, fired up, looking forward to deer season. Kip and I cover things like harvest trends. We cover the big topic of CWD. We cover the topic of hogs and what do you what to do if you have feral hogs on your property. And then we just talk deer management and deer hunting in general. It's a great episode, but before we jump in, here's a quick word from our sponsors. Get ready to share your hunt this season with the Tacticam 6.0 point of view camera. Featuring a built-in one-inch LCD touchscreen, one-touch operation, weatherproof housing, and mounts to fit any style of hunting, the Tacticam 6.0 is sure to simplify the self-filming process for you and make sure you have high-quality footage to share with family and friends. The 6.0 features up to 8x zoom, new image stabilization technology that takes the shock out of the shot and lets you capture crystal clear 4K 60 frame per second footage. Now through September 21st, you can get a 6.0 camera, a stabilizer mount, a clamp mount, and a bottle of scrape fix for just $355.99. To learn more or pick up your 6.0 today, head over to Tacticam.com. If you want to create more memories and fill your freezer while you're doing it, the Onyx Hunt app is a must-have tool in your arsenal. With major new aerial imagery updates with historic look back, high-frequency imagery, and even the ability to order your own custom imagery, the Onyx Hunt app has solidified itself as the leader among mapping systems. Now, this is all on top of the public and private land ownership info, the ability to use this app with no service, and the unmatched reliability that you have come to expect out of the Onyx Hunt app. You can try the Onyx Hunt app for free for seven days. Just go find them on the app store of your choice, or you can go to onyxmaps.com to learn more. The archery opener is right around the corner, and you can hunt in comfort this season with camo from Huntworth. They make high-quality technical camo at a fraction of the price of other brands. My personal favorites for the early season include the Durham lightweight pants, which are rugged and durable, but also lightweight and breathable with just the right amount of stretch where it counts, and the Gadsden quarter zip hoodie, which is made to be breathable and moisture wicking. To make building out your kit simpler, the Huntworth website now features their new system builder. This tool will help you grab the right camo no matter what season or species you're hunting. To check out their full camo line, head over to HuntworthGear.com. Now let's get into this week's show. All right, it is an honor today to have uh, the Chief Conservation Officer from the National Deer Association, Mr. Kip Adams, on the line with me. Kip, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Josh. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. I uh, Heading into this deer season, I really wanted to get you on and have a conversation about the 2023 deer report. Now, this report came back in, came out in January, uh, so it's been out for a little while. People have had time to review it and look it over, but here heading into the season, I think there are a lot of really important reminders that uh, can maybe help us make more informed harvest decisions, can maybe help us when it comes to uh, understanding some decisions that we can make to um, support our local deer herds better. Uh, and then there are some things that just when it comes down to the, the practical nuts and bolts of hunting, you know, we can talk about hunter access and that sort of thing. How does that conversation sound to you? I think that sounds perfect. And uh, I wish I was in one of those states that archery season was here. Uh, in Pennsylvania, we got to wait a couple more weeks. So, uh, But uh, I have lots of friends across the country hunting and shooting deer uh, already. So I'm a little bit jealous. I feel a little bit behind. Yeah, I was going to ask how you've uh, – I've, I've been sitting here watching folks in North Dakota mm-hmm. just having a ball over the last couple of days. Um, watched folks a couple weeks ago in the, with the Tennessee velvet hunt just like – Man, they're they're having a blast, and here I am just waiting for September 9th. Although, although September 9th, it's going to be 90 degrees here. 
uh, is the forecast. So mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Well, how do you feel about hunting hot weather? Do you, you guys probably don't do that a whole lot. We don't start till late September or early October. Um, however, I have a good friend in Maryland. They always start the Friday after Labor Day. So for the past three years, he has invited my young son down to, to bow hunt their opening day. And uh, so I get to go sit with him. And, uh, you know, so I get my fix for starting early. It's always hot. But the way I look at it is, uh, you know what? It's opening day. It's early in the year. So if season is open, even if I'm sweating in a blind or on a stand, I am glad to go. Right, right, absolutely. At least at least knock the rust off, right? Because there are those things that you're going to forget or you're going to realize you didn't replace this or that or you're going to, you know, work the kinks out a little bit, you know, maybe. Uh, exactly. There's always in. things in your pack that you forget, you know, you think you have it and you, you're, you know, you're sitting there and be like, oh, either I don't have it, so I got to get it, or you just have to remember where everything is, you know, in all the different pockets so that you can grab something as quickly as you need it. Um, so anyway, you know, it's a, you should practice that, I guess, before you go, but uh, um, early season's a great time just to get everything set. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Kip, I thought we would uh, kick things off here talking about the 2023 deer report and just ask with, with this question, I want to start on a positive note. What are some of the promising trends that you saw as that data came in and you guys compiled it and put it in the report for us? I think one is that hunters are more knowledgeable about uh, deer than ever before and how to be good stewards of our natural resources. So that parlays into we have the healthiest age structure we've had in at least the last 150 years from from a deer population. Wow. You know, we have very balanced age structures for both bucks and does. And that's a direct result of, of you know, what we choose to shoot or pass during the season. So uh, we have from an age structure end arguably the best we've had certainly in any of our lifetimes. And, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that piece of hunters being more knowledgeable than ever before, uh, one is critically important, right? It's helping us make better choices when we're out in the field. But at the same time, I, I think it's in large part due to the work that you guys uh, mm-hmm. have done and the things that you've been producing. Um, you know, over the last several years, it seems like the content just keeps getting better and better. And I recently completed the Deer Steward One course. Mm. And if folks have not done that course, you need to go do it. Like, I've been podcasting about whitetails for a couple of years. I've been hunting whitetails my whole life. I thought I knew a lot about whitetails. And then I took the course. And I'm like, oh, all right, there's there's a lot to learn. And mm. I was going to go to Deer Steward Two. It just didn't work out with our calendar and kids' birthdays and all that kind of thing. But uh, already looking forward to when I get to do Deer Steward too, because it is such a great uh, investment of of your time to take that Deer Steward one one class. I just I learned so much, and I'm I, I'm going to be a better hunter this year, I think, because of it. So, um, all right, so we've heard the positive. Maybe give me a trend or two that is a little bit troubling for you when you sit back and think about the future of whitetails and deer hunting in in the U.S. Well, one of the things that we have seen slipping the last few years is hunters are really slowing down on the number of antlerless deer they're shooting. Um, If you look nationally, only about 40% of the hunters that go afield this year are going to shoot a deer. And that's not a doe, that's that's a deer. So the perception is, man, you know, in many states have multiple buck bag limit, we can shoot all these antlerless deer. But the reality is, less than half of the hunters that go out are going to shoot a single deer this year. And only about 18% of the hunters are going to shoot more than one. So what that means is if hunters only going to shoot one, he or she is far more likely to shoot a buck than a doe. And given that hunter numbers are are declining, um, we need hunters to shoot more antlerless deer now than in the past. Deer herds are, are very high and in many places above what the habitats can can adequately support. So uh, that's one trend that's a little concerning is hunters over the last decade have really backed off the number of antlerless deer they're shooting. And uh, we're starting to see some of the negative implications from that now. So we certainly encourage hunters to, to take at least as many does as bucks this year. For most of the U.S., there are some isolated places where, you know, those populations just can't handle that harvest. But the vast majority of whitetail range, um, to keep healthy deer herds, we need hunters to shoot at least as many does as they do bucks. Right. I wonder why, 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 would, why do you think that that trend has gone that direction? I, 
I grew up, uh, so I was born in 86, right? So I saw a lot of the, when I, you know, when I first started hunting, we had relatives who wouldn't shoot does or, you know, heard of people who didn't like to shoot does because does bring the bucks. And then I saw this, you know, emphasis, especially in a club that I was in and on, on this lease that we had, uh, where guys were very serious about harvesting does and making sure they killed as many does as they did bucks. And uh, so I saw that that increase, but but now what you're saying, you know, there's this decrease. Why do you think that is? You know, about a decade ago, we were harvesting a lot of antlerless deer. Hunters were doing a great job. Then at about the time that we started to balance deer herds with what the habitat could support, we had a couple double whammies on the deer herd. We had two of the worst hemorrhagic disease years in our history within a five-year period. Uh, across a lot of the southeast, we had increasing coyote populations, so fawn recruitment rates dropped. Right. At the same time that we had a lot of land coming out of our federal uh, wildlife habitat programs, you know, CRP. We lost millions and millions of acres. So those three things all at the same time or approximately the same time hurt the deer herd well so you had hunters that were now shooting more deer all of a sudden we couldn't sustain the same level of analyst harvest so you had hunters get nervous and back way off so five to ten years later those things from a disease standpoint or from a hemorrhagic disease standpoint from a fawn recruitment rate standpoint has improved and now we've kind of stabilized you know what's going on habitat wise so Deer herds are doing really well and growing again. So as hunters, you know, we kind of follow that curve. We need to now follow suit and start shooting more antlerless deer again. Right. More similarly to what we were shooting a decade ago. Right. Need to get need to get back on the trigger. And, you mm -hmm. know, there's always that bias, it seems, um, that, boy, we sure are seeing fewer deer than we did last year. Boy, we sure are seeing fewer deer than we did five years ago. That always seems to be there. But I do remember... Uh, a time hunting in Alabama, you know, all of a sudden it was like we we really maybe weren't seeing as many deer on our trail cameras or that kind of thing. But uh, now we are we're back to the point where, um, you know, on on let's say three acres of food plots in one evening we'll have pictures of thirty forty deer, and it's like yeah we need mm -hmm. to we need to start we need to start thinning mm -hmm. some of these things out or we're we're not going to be able to to sustain this. Um, one of the stats that caught my attention as I was reading through this report was the, um, the harvest by age uh, breakdown and how that was looking. A couple of things really stood out to me. One, across the southeast, it seems, our yearling buck harvest is, is fairly low. And, hmm. you know, right where, right where I would like to see it, I mean, it could keep coming down and I'd be okay with that. I was also surprised to see that at many places in the Midwest, it's actually pretty high uh, hmm. compared to the southeast. Then I saw the three-and-a-half-year-old buck harvest. In the southeast, man, things are going gangbusters. In Louisiana, uh, in Mississippi, even my, my home state of Alabama was doing pretty well in that regard. Uh, but then other states like in the Midwest, you see them lagging behind pretty significantly states in the southeast. I'm curious what your thoughts are, are on that, what that long-term trend has looked like, and maybe why you think it's getting to the, the way that it is. Yeah, I think long term, we're in a really good spot, better than we have ever been before. So so that's pretty encouraging. And that's due in large part, you know, to, to hunters knowledge and organizations like ours and others that are teaching hunters the benefit of, you know, passing younger deer. Um, I think where we are today, where we see basically the southeast, well, year in and year out, the southeast as a region harvests the lowest percentage of yearling bucks as anybody in the country. And what I mean by that is take all the, the antlered bucks they shoot what percentage of them are only one and a half years old versus what percentage are two and a half versus what percentage are three and a half and older. The Southeast always shoots the lowest percentage of one and a half year olds and the highest percentage of three and a half and older bucks. And a couple of things that go into that one, you had the first antler restrictions in the Southeast. So you just have been practicing that longer. It's to the point now that you have a couple of generations of hunters that have hunted under that. So it's, it's just the cultural norm now, you know, they're just not past or not shooting, you know, those, those small yearling bucks anymore. They're just, Hey, we know how much better it can be if we pass them. So they do that. You also have in many parts of the Midwest deer get much larger antlers 
uh, at younger age classes right. than you do at some right. places in the southeast. Not to say that you don't have kill huge deer in the southeast. You can kill a huge deer in any state in the country today, which is really really cool. But you know, the average two or three year old deer in say Wisconsin or uh, you know Minnesota antler wise tends to be quite a bit bigger than the average in even Texas or, you know, or Georgia or Mississippi. So you have folks that are happy, you know, with those deer, so they might shoot them a little younger. And also, and this is a big one, you have dramatically longer deer seasons in the Southeast. Mm -hmm. The firearm seasons in the Midwest average, and I won't remember this exactly now, but it's, it's something like 15 days. Uh, That's it. So they're very short, compact seasons in the southeast your firearm season averages it's like 80 days so you have much more time to be choosy you know to wait for a larger deer so you know the seasons that you guys have work very well for you the seasons they have in the midwest work very well for them so it's one of the things that's neat about deer management is that it's not a one-size-fits-all recipe but the way you have yours laid out that just really gives you a great opportunity to, uh, to shoot a much larger percentage of older bucks. Right, right. I've often wondered, you know, I hunt in Wisconsin. I also hunt in Alabama and Georgia. Um, I've often wondered what it would be like for Alabama, let's say, where I grew up hunting, to have a nine-day deer season like Wisconsin has. I think we would be very disappointed, and we would not be able to keep up with, mm-hmm. you know, with, with the population growth. In Wisconsin, however, success rates are much, much higher. I think it's due to terrain and you know, just the way things break down with smaller woodlots, lots of farms, that kind of thing. Um, up there, a longer season, you just couldn't sustain it. There wouldn't mm-hmm. there wouldn't be any deer left. You know, it would just be a, a slaughter. And, and you're right. You can be a lot pickier when you know, boy, my season came in in November, and I get to hunt right on into February with mm-hmm. a rifle, you know, the, with a long-range rifle. Like, we're going to have lots and lots of opportunities. Yeah, and that really goes to just hunter behavior as well. Like I know lots of diehard deer hunters in the southeast that um, that may not even go out opening day. Right, it's just way too hot. The wind is not right. Hey, you know we have seventy nine other days. I don't know anybody that's not going out opening day in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Um, You are going to be there. I mean, it's bigger than Christmas. Right. So uh, hunter, hunter behavior plays a lot into that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a quote in, um, in, in the deer report that's sort of blocked out from the rest. And it's something that I learned quite a bit about in the deer steward one course. uh, And that is um, aging deer. And so the quote says, Age structure data is the backbone of deer management programs. I'm curious for the average everyday guy that says, you know what? I want to start taking this a little bit more seriously. I want something better than a rough guesstimate of the age of this buck. I really want to put some work in and find out how old are the deer that we're harvesting? How old are the antler deer? How old are the antlerless deer? Uh, where, where should they start? Like, what would you recommend? We have information on our website. Um, articles, videos on our YouTube channel, um, mat or charts, you know, that teach them exactly how to do that. Um, so they, they could go there, watch our YouTube video and then, you know, do that for free. If they wanted a little better instruction, they can take the jawbone aging class that, you know, that we have as part of, uh, you know, our deer steward stuff where we literally show them how to pull the jawbone um, from a deer that's been harvested. And then step-by-step, step, here's how you actually age it. So, uh, yeah, the deer steward class is a, is a great opportunity for, for more hands-on stuff. Uh, but we first want people to understand the importance of aging those. And then more and more people want to be able to do it themselves. And you know what, Josh? We can teach anybody to do it in a very short period of time. It's not a hard thing at all. Um, you just need a little bit of instruction, a little bit of guidance. So folks can immediately go watch our YouTube video for free, or they can come to a deer steward class and uh, hang out with us and have some fun, and uh, we'll teach them to do it in person. Absolutely, man. Let, so let's go into that just a little bit. Uh, you said that you guys spend some time trying to educate folks why this is important. Uh, for people who maybe have been listening to our conversation about the age of deer or whatever, and they're like, you know what, I, I'm not concerned about all that. I don't, I don't care. Why should we be concerned with the age structure? Now, let me, let me give a little bit of context here. There is a, a lot today, uh, especially in hunting media, saying things like, my tag, my hunt, 
you know, don't buck shame me. I get all of that. I really, really do. <clears throat> we should, when we harvest a deer, we should be proud of that animal, no matter what, because we decided to pull the trigger. When a buddy of ours harvests a deer, we should be happy for them. We should be supportive. Um, I understand that your tag is yours and you get to decide how to use it. I also understand that not every buck in the herd performs the same kind of actions and duties as a four and a half year old deer would. I also understand that uh, a herd that's age structure is more diverse is a healthier herd, right? Why is it important to manage our age structure? Well, we deer evolved under a very balanced age structure. They're very social animals, and there's a lot of things that go on in a deer herd that just work way better if they have that full complement of ages. So as managers, given that's how deer evolved, that's how the social order works best, that's what we should try to replicate through our, our hunting programs. Um, 30 years ago, when QDMA started, which now is the National Deer Association, uh, there was not good age structure at all. It was very skewed to younger bucks. Hence, that's where the whole impetus of the organization came from. Fast forward to today, we have very good age structure. So, yes, there is no reason for any buck shaming or folks to, you know, uh, feel bad about what they shoot. And I tell people this all the time. I'll have somebody show me a picture of deer they shot and be like, well, I didn't have much time to hunt or I thought it was bigger. And I say, you know what? Do not apologize. Right. Don't ever apologize for deer you shot. Be happy for that. Take that home, celebrate with your friends and family, and eat it. So, you know, don't don't apologize. I don't want to hear it. I don't care if you shot a small buck. I don't care what you shot. I will be the first to congratulate you until you apologize for it. Right. And then I will shame you for apologizing. Be happy. <laughs> so, But it, we want to know the age structure because we can determine a lot about the health of that deer herd by knowing that. So, for example, if all the... Bucks that were killed, uh, say none of them were more than two and a half years old. That shows a problem. If we don't have three-year-olds and four-year-olds and five-year-olds, same thing on the doe side. If none of the does are older, that lets us know, ooh, something is going on. You know, like they should be deer in all these different age classes. So by monitoring that, we can monitor health of the deer population. We also can monitor how hard we're hitting that deer herd. So for example, by monitoring age structure, we can see, are we applying too much harvest pressure or too little harvest pressure? So there's a lot of information that we can gain to make good management decisions if we know the age structure of the deer that are harvested. So that's why managers want to know that. And that's why more hunters than ever before today pull those jaw bones and then have that data. So in addition, it's a lot of fun. Think about it. Say it doesn't matter if it's a buck or a doe. If you pull that jaw bone and find out, man, that deer is five years old or seven years old or 10 years old. Like how cool is that, that you have killed a fully <laughs> mature deer, you know, and just think of all the, the hunters that it has evaded. Um, so anyway, there's a lot more fun that can be added to the experience if you know how old that deer is. So uh, we pull the jaws from every single deer shot on our farm. And uh, I have shot does that are in their teens, as well as both of my kids. Wow. And uh, more than once they shot a doe, we will celebrate. This is great. Pull the jaw and be like, oh my gosh, the deer turned out to be more than 10 years old. Wow. So, you know, that just adds a whole nother level of trophy status to the doe. So right. it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Right, right. That's really good. One of the things that the deer steward course emphasized uh, several different times was, you know, putting things in place that let us know whether or not our management practices are working. Right. And if you're not getting this kind of data, this is another example. We, we won't know if the things that we're doing are working. If we can't say, you know, three and a half year old bucks on our property typically weigh around this, <clears throat> how do we really know if we have enough food? How do we really know if the habitat improvements we're doing are working? How do we really know if, you know, they're, <clears throat> having access to adequate resources on our ground. Um, let's jump into uh, the, the the breakdown between public and private land. It I was I was surprised honestly to see you know some states coming in ninety five plus percent of deer harvested are harvested on private land. There's a lot that gets said about our local DNRs and how they're managing the deer herd. 
in reality, though, um, landscape size management mm-hmm. happens on 40 acre lots all across the country. Mm-hmm. And it is a it is a communal effort uh, because deer aren't going to live on just that 40 acres alone. So let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, this breakdown between public and, and private land and maybe how that should inform what we do when it comes to, uh, you know, what we decide to shoot, how we interact with our neighbors, and, and maybe even when it comes to our interactions and understanding of the way our local DNR works. Yeah, I, the that was a big question relative to, you know, where are these deer harvest, you know, where's the majority coming from? I certainly felt that the majority were coming from private land. I was even surprised to see it was that high. Basically, nine out of 10 bucks killed across, or I'm sorry, nine out of 10 deer killed across the U.S. come from private land. Um, so it doesn't mean the public land is not important. Public land is incredibly important. Right. But that just shows that from a deer management standpoint, you know, we have to understand, yes, most of these will come from private land that needs to be taken into account with our hunting seasons, bag limits, um, et cetera, which also are other programs that work on private lands like deer management assistant programs. And fortunately, an increasing number of states now have these DMAP programs, you know, that allow more site-specific deer management, which are great. Those are great for landowners. They're great for hunters and they are great for the deer resource. So uh, as much as anything, Josh, we wanted that chapter to, to highlight where these deer are being taken just so that we can develop new tools and even enhance the tools we have to continue to do a really good job. And I had some people contact me about, you know, Hey, don't be shamed in public land. I said, this is not about that at all. We need more public land, right? you know, and which is one of the reasons that at NDA, you know, we have this big public land initiative where, you know, we're going to enhance a million acres of public land, you know, by 2026 to have better deer hunting. I get it. Um, this was not about that at all, but this is just about recognizing where most deer are taken to make sure we're doing the best job we can to provide programs to manage them adequately. Hey guys, just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the How to Hunt Deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge, making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that's a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions in the past, you know how frustrating it can be to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of accessories. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with a 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. So let's jump into that piece a little bit, right? This segues right into hunter access, and we knew that was a topic that we wanted to get to. I I want you to break down that that, uh, you know, program that you just, or that initiative that you just threw out there, you guys want to enhance 1 million acres of public land by 2026. Tell me a little bit about what that means and what that looks like. It's, it's a five-year program. So 2026 will be the fifth year of it. So we're, we're a couple of years into it now. Um, there are some organizations that can buy land and then provide access to it for hunters. Um, the NDA, we said, you know what? We're not going to take that tact because there's a lot of public land right now that just isn't very good habitat and it just isn't very good hunting or doesn't have access. This is not a knock on those managers at all. It's just they haven't had the opportunity to enhance habitat or their hands are tied, you know, by environmentalist groups and others when they're trying to do that. So we work with the, the U.S. Forest Service on national forests, and this initiative is to improve access, habitat, and hunt deer hunting on a million acres. So uh, Matt Ross, who's our director of conservation, he uh, spearheads this program for us. 
He works with forest, national forests in numerous different states and all regions around the country. So he's all over the place. And essentially, because we're a 501c3 organization, we have the ability to go in and actually cut trees on many of these national forests and do other habitat work. So we work closely with the Forest Service, with their, their biologists and their foresters, to identify areas that need to have habitat enhanced, and then we help facilitate that. If it's timber sales, we facilitate the timber sale, and then the money from that sale goes right back into that forest to improve habitat that's there. You know, might be streamside stuff. It might be some access, you know, into these areas. It's other wildlife work. So uh, this is all for wildlife, and it's because of our national profit status that we can make it happen. And of course, from our deer knowledge, that uh, that helps us work with those forests to the to make this the best for deer we can. Right. So. Uh, our biggest public land initiative, we're very excited about it, and uh, it's a big deal. A million acres is a lot of land to improve for wildlife. That is a lot of land, absolutely. Uh, it, it sparked a question in my mind, though, as you were talking about it there. I'm on uh, a lease here in, in Georgia, and as you likely know, many of our leases down here are pine plantation, right? Like They, they are row crop pine trees, essentially. It's, uh, it takes them a little longer to harvest than a, than a uh, you know, a patch of corn or something like that. But mm-hmm. it is essentially treated like ag land. Um, what we have, though, on a lot of these places are stands that are managed solely with timber in mind. Um, you know, stands will go their entire lifespan without ever being burned. Uh, they'll go way longer than you might think without being thinned. Is there anything that you're seeing people do to be creative, to, you know, improve these areas that, you know, the the local timber company and their foresters, they're not going to put wildlife first because they're there for a profit. They're there to make money, not faulting them, but just to say, is there anything we can do to deal with the hand that we're dealt? I was at a, a show recently um, called Buckarama down in Perry, Georgia. And we had lots of people coming through to stop by our booth and talk to us. And a common thing that I, that I heard was, I'm on timberland. There's nothing I can do. My hands are tied. All I can do is dump a bag of corn and hope the deer come through there. Because I can't touch a tree. I can't touch the ground. I can't do anything. Are you seeing people get creative and find solutions for that? Yeah, I'm going to answer this uh, two sets. One is... You know, there, there are pine plantations throughout the Southeast. Um, in general, higher quality land, they grow crops on like corn, soybeans, alfalfa. Lower quality land, they grow crops like trees. Trees don't feed deer near as, as much as more of our agricultural crops. However, that doesn't mean that we still can't have very productive areas there. More private landowners today who are in pine production using pine, pine plantations can treat the understory of those and make it very high quality for deer. There are a lot of broadleaf plants or forbs that can be in those understories. So when it's time to thin those pines, more sunlight to the ground, we can remove that those uh, pine needles with prescribed fire and grow lots of high quality food underneath the pine trees. So there's a lot of private landowners providing a tremendous amount of food and cover for deer underneath the pine stand, you know, that they are going to be, uh, or that they're growing for revenue. So we absolutely know how to make that work. Right. The second part of that is, okay, well, what if that pine plantation is on for or timber company land or land, you know, that I'm leasing and I can't do any of the thinning with those. And I have worked with a lot of leases all over the country on this. You are definitely at a disadvantage because you can't cut trees. Um, Oftentimes, those timber companies still allow folks to plant openings uh, like log landings, uh, you know, for some food plots. But they also have an opportunity that many miss along the woods roads. You typically will have grasses and they're often perennial cool season grasses growing along those roads. Those are great opportunities to replace those grasses with broadleaf plants. So you're not, you don't have to buy seed and plant those as food plots, but by killing the perennial grasses, many of those are replaced with broadleaf plants, which are preferred by deer. And since you have those roads, they tend to wind through the property. They may not be all that wide, and that's why people often overlook them. But woods roads are a great opportunity on many leased lands like that 
the uh, the owners will st- often will let you kill those grasses. You're not killing trees, but you know you're spraying an herbicide to kill those grasses. Let what the soy seed that's in the seed bank germinate so you don't even have to buy seed if you want to buy seed and plant there you can but in many cases you don't have to that is a great way to provide high quality forage for deer um i do that on my own property along woods roads as well so uh you know and i have i also you know work in old fields and plant food plots and that but if I didn't have an opportunity to do those, and one of the only things I could do was along those wood roads, I would absolutely take advantage of every foot of road I could to do that because that at least is a way to be able to get something going. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really good point. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, a lot of the roads on my on my lease right now where they, where they do get wider and there is a little bit of sunlight, it's primarily broom sedge bluestem. <laughs> that, mm. that, that's all you got down both sides. And just a little bit of disturbance or getting rid of some of that could, you know, like you're saying, increase the amount of forage on the property. Um, yep, very quickly you can spray and that and walk away. And some of it will come back in grasses, but a lot of it will come back in broadleaves. So now every one of those broadleaves is going to be more valuable than that broom sedge was. Right. And we're not, you know, not necessarily trying to eliminate all the grasses. We, we would love right. to see it pop up really nice and diverse and, and have a, a good mix there. Um so let's talk then a little bit more about the hunter access piece. It's becoming more important, I think, now, even though hunter numbers are, are dwindling or are decreasing, um, the popularity of hunting public land has gotten pretty, pretty, pretty big out there. There's a little thing called YouTube. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, there's a lot of guys on there hunting public land. Um, private land is becoming more and more and more expensive. Leased land is becoming more and more expensive in many places. Uh, so hunter access is a really, really big deal. What are some of the things that, you know, NDA is focusing on to increase hunter access? What are some of the creative ways that you're seeing states begin to solve this problem? And maybe where would you like to see folks go over the next couple of years when it comes to increasing the amount of property that we have open to us? Well, I think this is this has been identified access as a big impediment for a long time now and it's only getting worse right so fortunately there are some federal um, monies available to state wildlife agencies to increase their public access programs we have been a big proponent of those and from an advocacy standpoint have fought hard to help states get that money because we recognize the need for these now i'm in pennsylvania a state that has a lot of public land we have like four and a half million acres of public land we are very very lucky but I'm the first to realize that there's other places like Texas that have like 1% public land. Right. So it's, I think there's twofold here. One is continuing to help states get money to improve or either purchase more land or enhance access on the lands that they have or improve the habitat on those lands that they have, which is good because it doesn't do us any good to have access if the habitat sucks and there's nothing there. So Access, yes, let's work on that and let's enhance the habitat that's there. However, uh, the chapter that's in our report this year that we talked about also is, do you have these, you know, private land access programs where there's many states that will pay private landowners, you know, to allow the public to access those lands for hunting. And, you know, if you talk to deer hunters, you know, what's one of the best regions of the country to go shoot deer, or if you could only go to one region or where do you kill the biggest deer? Many people immediately think of the Midwest. Right. We want to go to Kansas and Wisconsin and Kentucky and all this. And uh, if you look at that chapter, the Midwest has some of the most private land access programs of any region in the country. Right. So a lot of that um, are because of pheasants and upland birds, but those are still, you know, folks are having access there. They're deer hunting, et cetera. So I think that's a good opportunity for people to realize, hey, if they can do that in the Midwest, they can do that anywhere. You know, we can make that happen. It's about, you know, the right programs to work with landowners to do that. They certainly can make that happen on, you know, timber company lands, uh, et cetera. So anyway, I think that there's a blueprint for that. We certainly recognize the need for that. And uh, in many cases, it's just about people getting involved, you know, to, to, to help make those happen. And then certainly to be responsible while they're, you know, hunting and or going to field under those programs, you know, to, to make landowners want to continue in them, you know, things right. like not littering, not tearing stuff up, you know, be, being a good guest. Yeah. 
Yeah, being just being a good person, <laughs> just be just being a decent person when you're out there, I think goes a goes a really really long way. I'm glad you mentioned though, um, you know, when it comes to you know helping states not not just purchase, um, but also manage and improve uh, these these properties. Right, I've got a place that I'm thinking of right now that is public ground that is extremely heavily pressured. Um, I was actually talking to another guy on the podcast not long ago who, who hunts the same area. And this place is very, very heavily pressured, but the hunting is very, very high quality. It's been high quality hunting for a long time and it's been heavily pressured for a long time. It's not far outside of a large uh, metro area. Um, but because of the quality of habitat, you may run into a few more hunters than you would like, but your hunts are, are almost always good. I mean, it, it is it is a very, very good place to hunt. But it can handle that because of the way it's being managed, because of the of the population of animals that live there. It is a target rich environment, uh, even though there's people on it all the time. So that that goes a really, really long way of we can actually stack hunters in a little more tightly on a property that's managed really, really well and all kind of have a quality hunt, even if it's on, you know, pressured public ground, so to speak. Um, I agree. Yeah. So let's, let's jump into now maybe a couple of, uh, maybe not the, the greatest topics to talk about out there, but, but challenges that we're facing as deer hunters and deer managers and people who care about the resource. Um, two big challenges that jump out. Number one, I think is, I don't want to say less threatening. It was surprising to me that I found it in the report though. And that is the issue of wild hogs. And what surprised me with wild hogs was just how far they've spread. I had no idea we had feral hogs in Michigan. I thought that's way too far north. I have viewed this as primarily a southern problem. I knew there were hogs in Oklahoma. You know, I, I didn't think that this was getting to be, you know, a broadly Midwestern or even Northeastern kind of concern. But then the stat in there, $2 billion dollars of damage yearly is estimated that it, that it are caused by feral hogs. So let's talk a little bit about their negative impact on deer hunting and deer management. Yeah, they, you say you thought it was a Southeast problem. At one point it was, right. It, it was just a Southeast problem. Right. That, that's not the case anymore. They have, they are very prolific, you know, breeders. Uh, they're great survivalists and they have spread like crazy. So um, we can talk about the, you know, the amount of damage they do to an agricultural standpoint. I mean, it's a lot of money, and that's certainly reason enough to, to, to want to limit their spread. But just limiting our talk even to just negative impacts to deer, um, that's an easy conversation to have because the list is long. They directly compete with them for food, and there's been lots of research now that, that highlights this. They're eating a lot of the same things that deer do. They love acorns and other hard mass. They love apples and other soft mass. They like agricultural crops. So they will directly compete with deer for some of the things that deer like the most. Um, they also are uh, competing with deer for space. In the most part, deer don't like to be around them. So when they come into an area, say deer are feeding on an oak flat, um, hogs come in, the deer are not going to sit there and just share acorns with them. In many cases, the deer leave that area. So there's studies that show from a space use standpoint, hogs are excluding deer from some areas. So there's nothing good for a deer herd when there's hogs there. Everything that happens about it, whether it's the, you know, the diseases that hogs bring in, um, the fact that they compete directly for space and for food. So, yeah, if you're interested in deer, and hey, I get it. I know people like to hunt hogs. I've hunted hogs. It's a ton of fun. But, uh, you know, if you even if you feel that way, you need to recognize every one of them that's there is negatively impacting the deer on that property. Right. I have I have personally witnessed as a kid, we had a we had a food pot, food plot we uh, not so creatively called number eight. <laughs> uh, and, and in this particular food plot, there were some hogs that were using it really regularly. This was down near Thomasville, Alabama and, uh, deer would come into that field and the hogs would chase them out. Or if deer were in the, in the food yeah. plot already, the hogs would come in and the deer would, would either leave or the hogs would directly chase them and kind of mess with them until they left. And, you know, firsthand they're competing with, for the food, they're competing for the space 
And all of a sudden, that wasn't a great spot to hunt anymore. They're a real challenge, though, when it comes to trying to, you know, limit their number on on your property because they can get out of hand really, really quickly. I don't mm-hmm. know how many litters they have in a year, but I think I remember somewhere seeing that it's like two, three, four, something like that, litters per year. And it can really get out of control really, really fast. What are some of the effective methods that you have seen or know about that, you know, help people control these? Yeah, you're right. They are very prolific breeders. And in most of what will have two litters a year. Um, people say, yeah, they're having three or four in general. They just simply don't have enough time. Like I so right. said, they had a litter, lost every one of them and it came back into heat as quickly as possible and did that three times. Yeah. Maybe they could have three litters, but okay. in reality, you know, they're not having more than two litters a year, but having said that, that's a lot of, you know, shoats or, or piglets. Right. Um, so that's, that's a lot of animals on the landscape. Um, so they, and they can breed, you know, throughout the year. So it's not limited. It's not just one time period in the fall, you know, like most deer herds are. So the fact that they have, a lot of pigs, the fact that they are very good at foraging and scavenging and even just surviving, you know, it's hard to shoot them all. And that's why, you know, where they are, hunters don't kill them out. Um, the only effective way to really reduce those populations, you know, is through trapping, you know, and they are so smart because, and that's why the traps we have now are designed to catch, you know, the entire sounder or that whole group of hogs, because if you only get one or two, then the others, you're not going to get them back into trap. They learn so quickly. Mm. That's one of the things that's allowed them to spread, you know, as far and wide as they have, you know, so uh, from a hunting end, yeah, it can be a lot of fun. It's fun to chase them with dogs. It's fun to hunt them, you know, like, still hunting or like you would on stand with a deer, but, uh, and it, it, they, they are a bad deal from a lot of different aspects, right. particularly if you're interested in deer or turkeys. Right. Yeah. So, and so they also, I, I guess are nest predators essentially, mm-hmm. correct? So that, that's correct. Yep, that's a certainly huge, can be. that's a huge issue for, you know, when we're seeing, you know, turkey numbers decline in, in the Southern United States, like think about the number of hogs that we've got around out there who are, either directly nest predators or just out there rooting around and messing everything up. So um, that's right. Yeah. I mean, and even, you know, in addition to the food that they compete with deer for, look how many food plots they destroy a year, you know, because they root, you know? So uh, anyway, I remember when I first job I had out of graduate school was for the state of Florida. And uh, I arrived in central Florida and I was on the triple N ranch wildlife management area for, for at that time it was called Florida game and fish. Um, Now it's called Florida fish and wildlife. But um, I had never seen a hog. I heard all the bad things. I thought I was kind of excited to get to see them. And, uh, and I will admit, I was very excited to get to hunt them. And I remember my first experience with them. We had planted a food plot. It was a food plot of chufa that we had planted specifically for turkeys. At the time, it was, I can't remember, four or $500 worth of seed. And then fertilizer and all everything else, we planted it. It looked awesome. Check on it. Check on it. It had just germinated. Oh, this is going to be great. The next morning, come back, and the whole thing was done. They had literally come in overnight mm. and rooted through to get the tubers in order to see, and they had destroyed the entire food plot. And it looked like, you know, we had been in there and disc the whole thing, you know, as they were. And I realized then I get it. Like I understand what they're <laughs> saying. So in that case, they were directly competing with deer and Turkey for food that was existing, but as well, they removed all of that food that, you know, we paid for and put the time into grow that would have been there in the future. That was there now, not there because of them. Right. So, uh, Lots of bad impacts, lots right. of negative impacts. Right. Yeah. There's, I was, um, I was hunting a property one time that was pretty intensely managed, uh, for deer. And this was sort of in that black belt region of Alabama, you know, deer management's a big, big deal down there. Mm-hmm. And the guy, when he dropped me off at my blind on the first afternoon, um, he said, uh, you know, we, you can shoot this size of deer and this is the width we're looking for. We're really trying to get them to this age, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, you know, fresh out of high school, early in college. I'm like, man, this is going to be awesome. And right before I get out of the truck, he says, and if you see 13 hogs, I better hear you shoot 13 times. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, this is that kind of problem. But he'd had the kind of experience like you're talking about where, you know, you come through one day and an entire road is just dissed mm. up or tilled up. Or they had this big plantation home, you know, where they would come through underneath the pecan trees out behind this plantation home and just till it all up underneath these pecan trees and cause damage to the trees because of 
you know, they're, they're pretty uh, prolific activity and they'll come through 25, 30 strong. And hmm. next thing you know, you've got a real problem on your hand. So if you like deer and you like turkey, when you see a hog, pull the trigger. But no, you're probably not going to affect a lot of change that way. You're probably going to have to resort to doing some trapping or some other kind of method to, to control them. Let's talk about uh, what I think is probably the elephant in the room when you're talking about deer management uh, for a lot of people. And that's the topic of CWD. Um, I hunt Wisconsin every single year. The county where I hunt in Wisconsin, the, la- the latest data that they have um, for deer harvested in this, in this specific county, 47% of the deer are positive for CWD. Other counties have it worse than that. Higher percentages of deer are, are positive for CWD. I see people saying, uh, one, it's a terrible problem. Like hunting is one day going to be forever changed by CWD. I'm reading a forum just last night, and people are saying it's not a big deal at all. People are just blowing this out of proportion. It's been around forever, and it will always be here, and it will never be an issue. Um, What are your thoughts when it comes to CWD, how we manage around it, and what are we learning right now? Like, are we making any meaningful headway? The We know very clearly CWD has not been here forever. That, right. That's not the case at all. That's just right. blatantly false. Right. There's a lot of people who who don't want to believe uh, there is an issue. And, uh, and I get it. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. I will say this. The vast majority of wildlife professionals see this as one of the biggest threats, if not the biggest threat impacting or affecting the future of deer hunting and deer management. So you can go anywhere and find somebody who will, who will argue the other side of it, but just know that about 99% of the wildlife professionals see this as a really big deal. Right. Um, from the National Deer Association standpoint, we recognize that as it is, we're lucky to work with some of the best CWD and disease folks uh, in the world. Um, we try to keep up with that information and then share that with our members so that they can make informed uh, decisions and choices as well. So my take on it is it is a huge deal. Um, part of the reason that, that some hunters don't feel that it is or don't want to believe it is in the length of the incubation period of the disease. So, for example, hemorrhagic disease is the bad disease of deer. Um, not all deer that get hemorrhagic disease die. For those that do die, incubation period is about five to eight days. So if they die, they get sick very soon, they die very soon, and we find them. So people see that and be like, oh, this is bad. Now, CWD... fatal to all deer. Every deer that gets it's going to die. But unlike hemorrhagic disease, where that has a very short incubation period, it's not five to eight days. For CWD, it's 18 to 24 months. So they don't show any signs of the disease until the end stages. And then they waste away very quickly and die. However, the whole time they have this disease, the disease is essentially eating holes in their brains. So they can't avoid predators as easily. They can't avoid humans. They don't avoid vehicles. So what that means is most deer that have the disease are dying from something else before they waste away and we recognize what it is. Some hunters will say, well, that's fine. They die to something else. The reality of it is they die at three to four times the rate of deer that don't have it. So it doesn't matter if you're talking about squirrels, ducks, turkeys, elk, or something else. If some part of that population is dying at three to four times the rate of healthy individuals, that's a big deal. And that's something to be concerned about. So that is one of the reasons why we are at the forefront of the fight against this to help improve testing and increase testing so state agencies know where it is and so that they can better battle it um so yeah josh it's it's a big deal there's you i mean i guess you can argue it but if you look at the facts um you it's indisputable how that this is a really big issue impacting the future of hunting right absolutely and you can look at let's see what's the best way to say this you can look at a state like wisconsin and you can look at other states that found it in their population is not much longer after that and you can say oh here's what worked and here's a here's a trajectory that didn't or maybe worked for a minute and then we abandoned ship because of political reasons and Mm -hmm. it hasn't worked out since then and now we sit here with 47 percent or higher Mm -hmm. uh positive rate in in parts of wisconsin which is which is really really sad to see when it comes to 
some of the things that states are trying to do. Um, <clears throat> things like no baiting regulations. Uh, you can't bait in CWD areas. Uh, things like scents being, you know, uh, actual deer urine being used uh, is being banned. Then I see people talking about, hey, you shouldn't be putting out water holes on your property because of CWD concerns. Hey, you, you really shouldn't be even be using mock scrapes. You should not put any kind of scent on a mock scrape. We don't want to do anything that is going to concentrate deer numbers. What are your thoughts on some of that? And, and do, you, do you think that those are effective methods of, of slowing the spread of CWD? Or, you know, do you think we should continue as, as normal until we kind of figure out a path forward? Well, we definitely know that there are different ways that uh, the, the prions or the contagious material are spread. So with deer, we know that they're contained in their saliva, their urine, their feces, blood. Um, however, not all of those uh, items transfer the disease the same rate. So, for example, saliva appears to be at least 10 times as infective as urine. So, what I think is where we, we have the disease, we should work to not congregate deer into an area where they are going to be swap and spit with each other. Right. Places like a mineral lick or a bait site. Um, we know very clearly that that is an easy way for a deer to transfer the disease to another deer. So urine deer association does not support urine bans. The reason for that is the, the, the likelihood of transferring the disease in urine is so infinitesimally small we don't think it's it's even worth messing with. Um, but saliva, absolutely, that's a big deal. So we support baiting bands and feeding bands in those areas or mineral licks, um, you know, even small water holes. I've seen people put out, you know, tiny, tiny little buckets of water, you know, that they bury. And any of those, you know, like deer are clearly swapping spit at those. So you want to do that or not, you can't ignore that that absolutely increases the risk of a CWD positive deer leaving these materials there that other deer will then pick up and become positive. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, <clears throat> when, when talking with landowners or, or, or with folks that I know, you know, we, we try to minimize what we, what we do when it comes to baiting and that kind of thing. Um, but it's such a hot topic. It is so highly debated. And when you start talking about baiting, or when you start talking about, you know, water holes, you hit something really, really deep in people. You know, I mean, it is, these are some of their favorite practices on their farm, their favorite things to do, their favorite places to put cameras. And all of a sudden the conversation becomes less about, um, you know, the science behind what could be going on there and more about uh, kind of an emotional attachment to a specific way. And so those conversations can be derailed very, very quickly. So I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that. Um, Kip, let's shift the, 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 the conversation in a positive direction real quick before I let you go. What do you have on the plans uh, or on the books for, for fall of 23? Oh, man, I will be spending a bunch of time hunting with my kids. The, so uh, they spend uh, all winter, spring, and summer, you know, enhancing habitat and, uh, you know, practicing with their bows and with their guns and getting ready. So uh, I'm very lucky that they both like to hunt with me. Um, I spend, plan on spending a bunch of time with my nephews hunting. Um, I always make time to take new hunters. I love to mentor new people, um, either as part of, uh, of NDA's Field to Fork program um, or outside of that where I'm just taking somebody on our. So uh, I plan on being in, the, in a tree stand a whole bunch this fall. And uh, hopefully some of it will be by myself, but uh, hopefully most of it will be uh, with somebody else sitting there with me, uh, you know, where I can enjoy that with them and, uh, and maybe teach them a thing or two. Absolutely, man. That sounds great. I, uh, I know for me personally, I, I still want those moments in the tree by myself. Like I still have, you know, especially my rut hunt, I've carved that out. Like that is my time. But outside of that, I have never once regretted taking my kids and having to leave early, you know, or having to, you know, bring a tablet along or whatever it takes to get them in the tree or teaching a new hunter the ropes. Like I always walk away from those hunts feeling like they were a success no matter what happens. Right. And so, um, yeah, Mr. Adams, thank you so much for your time. Where can folks go if they want to learn more about how to get involved, maybe find more from you or maybe even just figure out what this whole NDA thing actually is? 
Yeah, the easiest way is to go to uh, our website. So the National Deer Association's website is deerassociation.com. All kinds of, of free resources there and information or our YouTube channel, Deer Association's YouTube channel. We have hundreds of videos there about all different aspects, you know, of deer hunting and behavior and habitat enhancement, uh, etc. Um, if folks want to reach out to me personally, my email is kip. That's K-I-P at DeerAssociation.com. I'm glad to answer anything or help folks out as well. Awesome, Kip. Well, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. All right. Good seeing you, Josh. Good luck this season. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you could leave us a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. While you're at it, you can follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at HowToHuntDeer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me, suggest topics that you want to hear, guests you want to hear from, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show and help me bring you great content each and every week. If you're looking for more outdoor content, check out thesportsmansempire.com where you're going to find my other podcast, The Wisconsin Sportsman, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts.